This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And good morning. It's December 15th, 1996. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Things all sweat and salty. Yeah. <laughs> sweat and salty. <laughs> sweat and salty, yeah. I'm thinking about Chinese food. Sweet and sour. <laughs> so, so who were those voices like then? Uh, Tim Allen. David Speller. Anthony Boxgall. And Bron Burton. I'm the ring-in. Uh, well, not really. You've done more shows than any of us. But yeah, this no. is our 1,000th show. Yes. Our 1,000th show. Amazing. Commence with the virtual party poppers because we don't do party <laughs> poppers anymore. Because <laughs> no, it's don't. plastics into the marine environment. We've set off 1,000 balloons. Oh, no, we haven't. No, we didn't. No, we haven't. <laughs> virtual balloons online. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm just looking around seeing everyone with glasses all trying to actually fiddle with dials <laughs> and put headphones on. Adjusting to... our backs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> were, you, were you suggesting that we were a bit younger then, uh, in 1996. Yes. <laughs> Hope Tim doesn't trip over your walking frame, Tim Allen. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we need to thank Tim Thorpe, of course, who is... If we have done... If Marinara's done a 1,000 shows... He's done about 10,000. He must have done... Yes, he must have. Because he does two a week, not one. <laughs> Absolutely. And they're longer. Three uh, hours and, <laughs> and he's was doing them longer. We're the snappers. Absolutely. Yeah, so Tim, once again, he surpasses himself. And all of us put together. And thank you we very much, Andrew, for Soulful Bits again as well. Of course. Well. Hmm. We've got a very big show. We're going to kind of delve into history. We're going to do something that we don't really... Bron and I were kind of talking about this. We don't, you know, we don't feel comfortable talking about ourselves, I think, where the show never has. We celebrated the 200th show. We celebrated the 20 years and we're going to celebrate the 1,000. But we are going to talk about the show and its origin and we'll talk about some of the cool stuff that we all remember. John Ford's going to join us a bit later on. We've got a special guest who's going to come on the phone 20 years later. And we're hoping uh, towards the end of the show, um, as you're waking up, that you might join us on air as well and... Um, and be part. Well, we know that you're part of <laughs> yes. our our family, and we absolutely feel that every year when Radiothon comes around. But uh, if you want to ring in towards the end of the show, not now, uh, and share with us some of your things, maybe that you've got out of Marinara over the last twenty two years slash one thousand shows. I know, and then and yes, now. <laughs> Should we do the weather? Should we do a traditional start? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we actually, before we jump into all the excitement, we're all a bit excited about this. Yeah, okay, so weather. Oh, someone's ringing already. Oh, Not oh, quite yet. Not quite yet. Although Kent might be able to grab the phone. Thanks, we'll do that Kent. towards the end of the show. <laughs> Uh, okay, heading for a top of 15 degrees today, uh, becoming cloudy, patchy morning fog and light winds. Tomorrow, 15, partly cloudy. Tuesday, 13 and cloudy. Pretty much that's the theme for the rest of the week. Thursday, a bit of showers uh, and, again, those mid-teens, partly cloudy, but basically, yeah, around 13, 14 and maybe a shower or two on Thursday. Uh, if you are heading out on the water, uh, Point Lonsdale, we are heading for, we've already had our high tide, heading for a low tide at 12.40 this afternoon and if you want to head out and go surfing uh, as always we strongly recommend you look at swellnet.com but we can tell you what is printed in the paper <laughs> which is from a few hours ago now moderate swells moderate northwest winds are favoring good waves along surf coast today water temperature is chilly 13 degrees and uh, Phillip Island try protected spots for small clean surf Mornington Peninsula we waves aren't great for open beaches but Flinders will have some okay options surf coast okay Okay, options. options. That is surfing term for forget about it, staying in bed. It's, I think. it's dead calm out there. It is. Yeah. It's yeah. dead calm all week. In fact, it's the best time to go shore diving. Good. 
Can we have a dive report, Tim? Yeah, did, and here we cross into Tim for a dive Where report. Where is Brett Illingworth when we need him? No, so, but, but look, I mean, nice and clear, it's going to be fantastic over the next week. That's for sure. Great. <laughs> that, was that, that was your professional dive report. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> clear, calm, get out there. Get out so, there. That's it. Uh, ran into Terry Allen yesterday at the East Bentley Farmers Market. As you do. As you do. As you do. And um, said we might call her for a, a dive report this oh, morning. Yes. But we'll see how we're going for time, Terry, if you're listening. And she's actually going diving this morning too. She's probably under already mm. in a cave somewhere. She can probably just pop up and get her mobile phone out, phone out like Brett has done on many occasions. <laughs> can I do a super, super quick news? Oh, yeah, totally. I've got one as well. Okay. Uh, first one, um, congratulations to Fom Sharko, who uh, is... Uh, comes into Radio Marinara and presents a monthly segment called Plastic Literacy. Um, the work that FOM does with the Port Phillip Eco Centre has a huge profile today in the Sunday Age on pages two and three, talking about some survey work that they've been doing on different types of plastics in Port Phillip Bay. So have a read of that. Um, FOM's going to be in studio, I think, next week, or maybe the following one, um, to talk about this de- in more detail. A great photo of FOM in there as well. And a, ve- and, and a segue to what I was going to talk about too, the, you know, there's a big international plastics in the oceans conference mm. in Melbourne in December this year and um, I just noticed that they've extended their abstracts and it's one of these conferences that is kind of like a community science policy kind of interface conference. Right. Very cool. We'll stick it on our Facebook but if you are involved in community kind of monitoring of plastics in the ocean, it's the conference that's safe for you to speak at. Yes, there'll be scientists and policy makers and everything but it's actually designed so that there's a kind of a citizen science um avenue and a science avenue so anyway we'll p- put it on but it's in december go international um plastics in the ocean you can't miss it it'll be a great conference fantastic Excellent. and we're going to do next month i mean i'm going to do um, some deeper coverage of it all right brilliant um uh, an event that i want to promote and this is coming up on friday this coming friday um second of august it's from 5 till 7 p.m at fed square it's called melbourne for i um, know oh you're gonna have to help me with my pronunciation here <laughs> uh that looks like a maori pronunciation kukia i mona i think it's it well it's about hawaii it's in hawaii it's- Close enough, still a Polynesian language, so I reckon reckon we'll be channeling his inner New Zealander. Oh, yeah. Actually, which is real. (laughs) (laughs) Kia ora, bro. (laughs) There you go. Melbourne for Mourner K. I'm going to look this up because I'm making a real... Butchery of this. Anyway, look, it's um, it's a it's a call to arms for people who are concerned about some inappropriate development uh, in Hawaii, and um, in particular the uh, development of a telescope, um, which has uh, been proposed on uh, on Mauna case. So, if you want to get along and show your support for that, um, Fed Square this coming Friday from five till seven. So we're gonna. John Ford's just walked into the studio as well. We've got a whole bunch of people. The, um, we, what we're going to do is we've all delved into the past and we've had a look back and we've tried to find um, the pieces of technology we used to kind of <laughs> deliver our radio on. And um, just before we kick into the first track we played on the first show... This isn't real to real, is it? No, so, it's on a wax cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> you know the gramophone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did actually, I don't, I've got a box that I found at the back of the cupboard that is called Radio Marinara Archives and in it is mainly audio tape 
cassettes, ferrous oxide, chromium dioxide, and those like special ones, the nice ones. That you have to put the pencil in to yes. wind up when <laughs> yeah, you're that's right. yep. yeah, yeah. And of course, so I bought a bunch of them in and I can hold them up to the listeners, of course, which you can't see, but um, I can't play them because there's no technology here in any studio to play them live, so we can't do that. I did find a reel-to-reel which I think, and I don't know why I've still got it, but I think it, maybe it's one of our early demos. Oh, I'm sure. So I had a lot of those that I threw out about 10 years ago because <laughs> all the tape came from the ABC as secondhand tape. We recorded a lot of stuff on it, and after a while it just started to degrade and all you got is this screeching noise out of the, the system, which is horrible. So they're just completely unplayable and unsavable. So I had to throw out a lot of those. We did, however, find um, mini discs full of stuff, which is probably what uh, mid nineties, late nineties, I think. Yeah, we were on mini discs. That's such a short-lived technology. Most people who haven't seen it. But it was great, and, and thankfully we can still play. So if we get time, we'll play one of those. But Dave, you found a copy on CD somehow, copied across the CD of the first interview or is it from the demo that's from the demo that we sent to triple r to get the show there's this and a couple other stories on it um and this is the the one we used to get the program when we sent off our submission and everything else to so we're gonna triple r which they'd never had before so yeah we're gonna play that later but do you guys remember what the first track was that was played on the first show in on december 15 1996 no idea Probably Bob Marley or something. I know, because it's on the running sheet. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, I didn't write it? it down. Oh, oh it is on the running sheet. Uh, I, I remember now, Fish Heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was Fish Heads by Barnes and Barnes. Do you remember that shocking video? It was like this kind of grainy mid-90s oh, kind so of you know, black and white you know, it's video. iconic. It is iconic. It is iconic. Anyway. I think one of the reasons we played that too is we spent months racking our brain thinking, what are we going to call the show? And one of the options was Fish Heads for Breakfast. That's true. <laughs> Let's come back and talk about some of those. Bron's going to interview <laughs> us about the origin story. Okay, so this was the first track, 1996. He says, hopefully. you got to press the button, remember? Oh, i got to press the button. Heads, fish, heads, fish, heads, eat them up, yum. Fish, heads, fish, heads, Happy fish heads in the evening, floating in the soup. Fish heads, fish heads, roly-poly fish heads, fish heads, fish heads, eat them up, yum. Ask a fish head anything you want to, they won't answer, they can't talk.
one. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Barns and Barns, Fish Heads from 1995 or whatever. We played it first show in 1996. There you go. <laughs> if you... I don't know if it's got any better with age. <laughs> Do you know what? I've played that song from time to time over the last 20-odd years and I had no idea it was the first song that was ever played on Marinara. There you go. We, we, all, we all should probably fess up song. a little bit too in that none of us really remember exactly. Like we can, we do know little bits of it. So, but but I'm pretty positive. But I couldn't find the first running sheet, for example. So I'm not sure. I think that's because we only sure had a six was. week slot. We didn't expect it was going to go anywhere. <laughs> and and that, that's exactly right. We we did think we we were filling in for a law show that Better they get a all lawyer. expected yeah. the lawyer was going to come back. Juliet Brodsky yep. was her name. But Juliet decided not to come back. So this is a perfect opportunity because I think the way we've constructed this particular segment is for me as the ring-in. I still feel like the you ring-in, do, by the way. <laughs> so you do know, Bron, you've done more shows than any of us. Okay, Probably put together like, collectively. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing we should point out to listeners is that we've always... The person who runs the show, you know, we call the mother hen, and Tim was the mother hen for three years. And then, and then left, handed over to me, and I was probably mother hen for about six years, which was double. And then, Bron, you've been mother hen for more than double. I can't do about maths. twelve years or more. Wow, then so well. or more. And it's I been think. everyone's been a pleasure. Yeah. So don't feel you. You are the you know. It's it's really your show. So yeah. <laughs> no, it's our show, and that's the whole point of today. I think is really celebrating the fact that we've done these thousand shows. Let's call it thousand. Um, yes, and plus we're really, or minus. When we when we say plus or minus, it's really only a, a, like five. Oh no, really. even less. I reckon we're within two. Yeah, we're we're pretty close. Yeah. So let's go right back. So you mentioned Tim that this all started uh, as a six week fill, and it was because at short notice. Um, the Triple R management at the time it was James Young who was program manager, I believe. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. He, so he was advised by the the former um, presenter within this time slot that this was going to be the end. So they had to quickly get a summer filling. Yeah. Is that right? And initially, they were taking a six week break for the summer holidays. Right. Yeah. And, and they're not coming back. No. Oh, and, did and you know at that pitch. stage they no, weren't coming no, back? No. 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 Right. no. Okay. No. It was it was purely we, we'd been wanting to pitch. So we. Dave and I had had a program over at 3CR called Out of the Blue. Which is which still running, is if you want to tune into that. Yeah. Exactly right. So it's longer than Marinara. And it, and, um, and it was obviously an ocean-themed program, and we decided that at that stage, why don't we pitch so to Triple R? And, yeah, came in with a demo tape. And well, gave it to the early, I remember. We, we put it together. We had the demo tape, and then we had a proposal. A written proposal. Yeah, we'd written a proposal. And like we a had business formal. case. Yeah, like we a business case. We were pretty case. formal. And yeah. we had money. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, well, the money was controversial. Very <laughs> controversial <laughs> because, and in fact, that was that actually perhaps almost did us in in a way yeah. because uh, the, the station manager at the time was Kath and, of course, the, the grant had come to us from the government and uh, to run a radio program because at that stage... We wanted to make this international, so yeah. we were wanting to make the program where we could actually dial people and speak to people all over the world. And of course, those days it cost, it cost a hell of a lot of money. Of money. Yeah. So, and and we managed, I think, to pick up about two thousand dollars from yeah, the state government two to support and a half it. Or something. It was, it was a bit more than that because yeah. it was for for us to edit the program down every week and broadcast on what was called. Working at 3CR, obviously called the Comrade Sat. Community radio satellite. So, meant all community stations across Australia could download it and play it. So that was our aim That's to right. download this. <laughs> so look between us and all the guys together. This yeah, story. yeah. So we did it the program and upload it, edit on reel to reel tape, of course, which is hours of work, cutting bits of tape apart, sticking them back together. To but but the controversy was that of course Triple R not having any government support and still and yeah. still yeah. and wanting to remain that that 
the actual money and the whole discussion had to go to the board to yes, be discussed yeah. and for us to, in fact, have the program. And I think, if I remember correctly, the, the, the management strategy around it was, well, you guys can... You, that grant was given to you so you can upload it to that satellite. That is something you do outside of Triple R. It is unrelated Correct. to your so program. So they never saw the money. It all went through. Triple so R never got else, the yeah, money. Yeah. Yeah. And it, we were safe. And so, and the transition across from 3CR to Triple R was about largely reaching that potentially broader global audience, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Look, and and look, the real driver at the time was because a number of us were campaigning to try and get marine protected areas across Victoria and realising that our opportunities to get the message out about the marine environment was pretty limited mm. and we were up against a media that was pretty hostile um, uh, you know, to the whole concept of actually having marine national parks. I mean, we didn't even call them those then, but marine national parks and marine sanctuaries. And that was a 12-year campaign and, and we thought we've got to get something which is actually trying to raise the profile of the marine environment and also really just celebrating the fact that you know, it's amazing people love the marine environment mm -hmm. right around the world and so we were able to sort of uh, indulge I guess our uh, our interests and our curiosity and make these calls all over the planet and uh, and bring people into uh, the triple R fold to hear about all things marine there's something that I want to test with our memories we, we there's this story that when we came in and I think it's true but I want to see if you guys when we came in and we, we sat down with James Young in the old Triple R Studios yeah, Victoria yep, yeah, yeah. in the boardroom and we had the demo tape which he'd listened to and we had the proposal and he had one in one hand and he had one in the other and he said, I've listened to this and he held up the demo tape and said, this is good, you know, we, we could put you guys on and then he held up the proposal and he said, I don't know what to do with that though. <laughs> yeah, no, that Did that happen? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. Probably, probably the best part of that story was for some reason Tim and I had had come straight from work and for some reason we both had to have... You dressed in suits. We both had to have suits on for the day so we turn up in suits going, James Young's going, all right, boys, what's going on? And what is this? I've never seen one of these before. <laughs> I forgot about that. I had this so we goes, funny. That's a proposal. He goes, yeah, but what is it? Goes, what do we do with it? That's what we're going to do. He goes, aren't you just going to make a radio program? And we don't have talk radio, by the way. We're mostly music and we're trying to really focus on that. We've got a gap. We might let you have that, but it's just limited because we don't do talk radio. <laughs> and I remember when, when we um, walked out uh, at some point after a show, I think we'd done about two, somebody actually in the studio looked at us and said, so you've got four left. So <laughs> What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> have you got enough content? That's well, right. That's always that been, was what it was. That's always the been the that, running... Um, Sorry, Dave. Once it, um, we got extended beyond our six weeks and we were coming up to Radiothon and at 3CR you never had to get... Well, you never got anybody ringing and you had to get all your friends to subscribe because that's how it worked. And um, we're coming up to Radiothon. They're going, right, um, you've got to try and get at least 20 subscribers. We've oh, got 20 friends. 20. What are we going to do? How are you going to do that? The show before us had got 11 or something a year before we are going, well, maybe we'll aim for 11. 11 will be good. If we can get 11, we'll be right. And then the Radiothon started and we're on the air and everyone's sort of making a lot of signs about, you guys are doing all right. We came out from the end of the show, we had nearly 200 subscribers had rung in and subscribed to the show after only the several months on air. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's been on January, February, about three months on air and we had 200 subscribers, which is unheard of in the previous years of the show. It's incredible. Fantastic. That's when they said, you guys want to stay on. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, we're gonna, we've found, we've dredged up the first interview. Yep. And I think this is actually from the demo. It was, yes. This yep. is from yep. the demo. So we're going to play about like two or three minutes of that and then we're going to ring uh, a special guest um, who may or may not have been involved in that first one. You'll hear a bunch of voices, so original um, team members. You'll hear Tim, you'll hear Laura Stewart, 
You'll hear me, you'll hear the special guest. I think you'll hear Dave as well. We have put it through a special filter to make us sound younger. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to play a bit of this and see how it goes. Now, if you caught up with uh, that fantastic telly movie that was on a few weeks ago called The Beast, that uh, latest offering from Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, then you could be forgiven for thinking that uh, perhaps giant squid were going to be lunging upon our beaches, ripping and tearing poor unsuspecting grandmothers and young children from bayside beaches and ocean beaches into greater depths. Uh, we thought that today we'd catch up with Dr Mark Norman from the University of Melbourne and the Museum of Victoria to find out some of the fact behind the fiction of uh, that spectacular telemovie. Uh, but before that, Anthony, can you give us a bit of a background to exactly what this was all about? Yeah, well, I think it was on, it was on TV well, it'd be a couple of weeks ago now, and it was one of those wonderful telemovies that were, well, possibly quite high budget, but relatively low quality. And um, <laughs> essentially what it was was just another Jaws and Orca movie rolled into one, but with a squid. And so there's a giant squid from the deep that is killing people. Um, its baby gets killed and it gets annoyed, so it comes back to hunt down the people that killed the baby. And in the end, it gets blown up with a big tin of petrol. So that's essentially the storyline of the entire thing. And I suppose we've dragged you in today, Mark, to ask you a bit of, a few facts behind the fiction. You know, how much of it was true? And do we need to fear for our lives when we're out there at St Kilda Beach? Well... I think we're fairly safe at this stage. <laughs> we won't be attacked by these giant blobs of plasticine in the bay. Um, they normally occur at like 500 metres, 1,000 metres down. So unless there's a really deep point in Port Phillip Bay, I think we're OK for now, basically. So there is a giant squid. It's a real creature. Oh, there's definitely lots of giant squids. We don't know much about them. We've had three come into the museum this year, and the last one was... Of their own accord? They're of their own accord. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't pay, it was so annoying. We had to get security onto them, and the last one was 15 metres long, so it was quite a job for security. 15 metres? That, that's that's, uh, that's sizeable. That's well, it's interesting when you look at that movie, because um, they sort of said, oh, this one's like 30 metres long, and they showed it, and it was really solid. It was spinning little trawlers around and all sorts of things, but... When they say a giant squid's 15 metres, there's about four or five metres that's the body and the eight normal arms, and then there's these two enormously long shooting tentacles that are like 10 metres long, and so that's the bit that gives them the length, but it weighed 220 kilograms, which is pretty heavy, but it's not in the tons, really. So those tentacles, I mean, the, what, do they, the, what does the squid actually use them for? Because in the movie, what the, what the mother squid used it for was to reach into the pool where the baby squid was being kept and patted it. Yeah. Is that what they do with them? Well, they're amazing. They can work <laughs> laptop computers, they can do Rubik's Cubes, all sorts of things. But no, mainly they, um, they've got press studs down the insides of these long tentacles and they sort of can link the bases, the shafts of the tentacles together. So at the end, there's about a half metre to metre long sort of club covered in big suckers with sharp hooks around the edges of them and the end becomes this sort of clapping sort of claw. So the, you mentioned hooks, you mentioned hooks on those tentacles. Now the um, giant squid actually had big, big hooks well, on the, its tentacles the, the bits too. I saw of the show, because I couldn't handle it too well, I got very <laughs> squirmy. Um, they talked about how they had these big scythe-like hooks on the tentacles that they found one off the baby that looked like a big kind of claw. Um, they actually occur on other squids, littler squids, but they don't occur on giant squids. Giant squids have got round suckers, suckers about the size of a um, tennis ball, say, and it's got a ring in it with hooks all the way around the edge of it, so it's sort of like it helps grip with the teeth and the suction, so pretty and scary. You said there were three found. Are they all been 15 metres? Or are they? No, there was a 10 metre one, a 12 metre one, and a 15 metre one, and they were all caught in orange roughy nets, so um, they probably were hit live. 
at about 500 metres so they're caught off by, Tassie. by yeah. fishing operations, Commercial basically. Commercial fishermen, yeah. Well, I mean, this is really unusual because you, you read textbooks and they say, you know, only found from beach wash or only found on, you know, when they've been rotting masses and they've looked like, you know, it's a bit of beach combing debris. So this yeah, is well, really... Yeah, I think it's actually a sign of what's happening with our fisheries because we're heading into deeper waters more as the shallow water fisheries disappear. We're heading into things like orange roughy fisheries. And to make a really kind of interesting association is that in South Africa they're just starting to investigate their deeper water fisheries, they're heading into these deeper water trawl fisheries and they're finding they've caught 10 giant squid so far this oh, year that have turned wow. up at the South African Museum. So we... It's that was, remarkable. That was our first segment. That was, the, that was the first segment in 1996. It was part of the demo. It was the first segment in the demo, then it was part of the first segment we played. Now, one thing we've talked a little bit about over the years is this, uh, I don't know whether this is just a legend or whether it had some truth to it, that the response back after the first show was, well, that was great, um, but you're a show about fish. What are you going to do next week? <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> right. That's exactly what it was. We've talked fish for 23 years. Yeah, <laughs> and some doubt about whether this show would have any real sustainability or long, you know, longevity so potential. It's, it's interesting you say, you know, when's your recollection? I I recall that as being in the interview in the boardroom that James said, I can get what you'll do on your first show, but what were you doing in your second? But now you mentioned that, Bron, was it actually after the first show? Yeah, great show, bit of feedback, great show, but what are you going to do next week? I think it was in the review in The Age. Uh, the, the first. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do next week? <laughs> No, I can't remember. Actually, it was one of those. Yeah, but we certainly somebody made that comment about what the hell are you going to do after this? Hey, we've got a we've got a special guest who's um, who's just rung in, um, uh, who may or may not have been there in that first show. Dr. Mark Norman, good morning, and how are you? Morning, morning. How are you going? <laughs> we just dug up an interview that we uh, did with you in oh, you know, 1996 about the I beast. Think 12. <laughs> yeah, we were all 12 then, I think. And uh, we remember, you know, being very worried about those giant squid taking over and, and attacking grandmothers, which you pointed out was a possibility, maybe. How many giant squid attacks have there been in the last 23 years? Uh, significantly less than one. <laughs> Whereas you could probably say the other way around was very disturbing, the number that have been attacked by us as humans. Hey, well, Mark, what have we actually learnt about giant squid in the last 20 years, plus years? Um, I think there, there was a quantum leap um, led by uh, an amazing guy, Sunimi Kubadera in Japan, who quietly went out with a very long... Um, a long string basically with a camera on the bottom with a flashing light off the south of Japan in 2004 and captured over 600 photographs of a giant squid coming in and attacking a, a bait and subsequently working with submarines and uh, other cameras he's, uh, he's been the first to film them live in their natural environment and what was thought to be a sort of a slow sluggish ambush predator has turned out to be a very uh, very mobile, active, kind of aggressive animal. So um, one of the most amazing things is this really long pair of, of feeding tentacles that they zip together to make a long sort of shaft with these claws at the end. Um, like the tips of the tentacles are like big gripping pads with suckers covered in sharp teeth. And uh, it's like a striking python to watch. They shoot it out, grab something and then roll it up in this shaft like a coiling python so all this stuff was totally unknown and unheard of until tsunami came along and then just recently we've had is it the second 
uh, live footage recorded of, of giant squid in the wild? Oh, there's there's quite a few. It's the uh, um, there's been some come into shallows and been filmed by divers um, off Japan, and uh, there was a study recently again by Tsunami showing that they'd recorded 57 giant squid coming through shallow waters. So um, 28 were found alive in shallow waters, and others were caught in set nets um, or stranded dead on the beaches, but. There seems to be some migratory route that goes through shallow waters and was causing strandings, whether that's a, a new thing from climate change and changing oceanography or um, temperatures, but there was a big burst of animals going through um, through the back straits of, uh, between Japan and mainland China. How shallow so, is shallow um, water for a giant squid? Oh, well, they were getting down to sort of divers in 10, 20 metres, so and they were capturing them on cameras at around two, 300 metres, which is still pretty shallow. They tend to be sort of down more than 500, 800 metres sort of end. So it's, um, yeah, well, it, it, it's an interesting phase in kind of knowing a lot more about them. And then there's a couple of other big squid that have raised their heads since uh, 20 years ago. So there's one called the colossal squid, which is more a sort of Antarctic, cold water squid and it's heavier than giant squid mm. so it's sort of a chocky chocky fatter version so giant squid get to about 300 kilograms they get to at least 500 kilograms wow. and they've got little muscly short arms covered in hooks like clothes clothes hanger hooks so they're going to be suckers with teeth they're even better fodder for hollywood because they're bigger and scarier. Well, they're, they're <laughs> bigger hooks. Yeah. yeah, and there's there's some disturbing video of a Russian ship pulling one alongside that they they um, pulled alongside a, a Patagonian toothfish trawler, and this thing's just like a squid you see at a at a jetty in in Melbourne, but about 500 kilograms worth, and um, it's it's yeah, it's in a group called the glass squids that are usually see through, but this is deep crimson red. And then probably the most elusive is something that's known as the big fin squid, and it's only been seen, the adults have only been seen from submarines, and they get um, long, thin tentacles up to, they sink seven metres long each tentacle, which they spread out like almost like flypaper covered in fine suckers, and they're sort of trapping things that move through in schools on these suckers, but the fin takes up the whole body. It looks like those Spanish dancer nudibranchs or the swimming flatworms. But the whole thing is probably, you know, 14 metres from arm tip to arm tip. And they think it links with a, a group called Magnapinidae, which is only known from juveniles that are about 5 to 10 centimetres long. Goodness. But nobody's ever caught an adult. But they've seen them on seven different deep-sea submersibles now. So now, now I have it's to nice ask. we're moving into a phase that we're using submersibles to see them and not things turning up dead in trauma. Yeah, yeah. Well, talking about submersibles, I remember years ago that one of the techniques that was being trialled at the time to try and get footage of giant squid was putting cams on the top of sperm whales. Now, after all these years, did any of it ever bear fruit? Uh, no. No, not that I'm... A, no, I know there was a lot of people with kayaks and rubber suction <laughs> cups trying to get close enough and whacking it on the top of the sperm whale. But I think... Um, I think it just showed that they go down a long way and come back a long way. I don't think anything ever came of that. I think the real other revolution's been the work by 
Eddie Weeder from the States, who is the bioluminescent queen, and she does amazing stuff with bioluminescence. But some of the success of Tsunami's later um, later uh, video work was using lights that is like the light given off like a, by a lot of prey to distract predators. And there's almost a kind of a a sense that if you show enough light on something mid-sized that's attacking you, then one of these giant squid will come and attack the mid-sized attacker. Yeah, wow. So they had things with spiral lights and pulsing flashing lights, and um, Eddie's done some amazing stuff just moving slowly through deep sea with like a giant um, fly screen in front of the submarine, and whatever bumps into it gives off light. And some of them are these big bursts of um, bright green light. Other ones are like spiral pulsing flashes that are sort of almost hypnotic. So the light shows down there are kind of part of the defence and part of the finding mates and part of the attracting prey. It's, it's just spectacular stuff. We, um, we're going to... We, we could talk for the rest of the show about this, Mark. And, of course, 23 years ago we started this way. And what I love <laughs> is that we just spent six minutes talking nerdy detail about squid and squid fins and nothing's changed <laughs> 23 years later. <laughs> I, I mean, so much knowledge, has changed. And we're still learning stuff. Our knowledge of the sea <laughs> and our knowledge of as the land is still just the tiniest it is, of an it? iceberg so when people sort of say oh yeah they've covered everywhere and they've um, discovered everything that's out there it's just rubbish so I think all the submarine work done together added up to something like 50 square miles of seafloor has actually been looked at when you know two thirds of the planet's deep sea floor and well two thirds of the planet's ocean and most of it's over a kilometre deep, so it's it's still. And I feel like we still know less about it than we do about so the, the moon. So. What I take what I take from that is that there's probably at least another there's content for at least another thousand shows of marinara. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, Mark, thank you well, so I much for a thousand shows. Justin Nudibranch. Mark, thank you. Absolutely right. Thank you for joining us on the first show in 1996 and the thousandth show and, in 2019. And congratulations to all of you. Great work and fascinating all the way through. Good on you, Mark. Thanks, Thanks, Mark. Mark. Thanks Mark. Dr. Mark Norman from multiple various acclaimed um, career highlights since we spoke to him in 1996. It's wonderful to talk to Mark. Anyway, you're on Radio Marinara. This is our 1,000th show. We, we have welcomed John Ford into the studio. John, welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Radio Land. <laughs> so great to have you back, John. Uh, thank you. It, it hasn't actually been all that long. I think it's been about nine months since I... Um, oh, no. Yeah, well, nine really? months? Yeah. Can I just make the point, you never actually left. No, no I never left. I'm not a Part, but I've just had a hiatus for, for nine months. Yeah, yeah. and that's okay. Now, I should also point out, we have like a thousand apologies. Angeline, Charles apologised, she couldn't make it in. Cass Philippou apologised, she couldn't make it in. I've actually we got a list of people Ooh. who I was going to thank at the end of the show, but I'll, well, let's do let's it do now. It um, and so these are people who have been part of Marinara over the last thousand shows. Um, so you mentioned, obviously, Angeline Charles, um, John, who is here, which is great, Cass Philippou, who was our first maritime archaeology yes. expert. Yep. And then Cass moved away, which was when Rex came in. Um, and we do, you know, we've had a great history of, of um, having people sort of come in and out of the marinara space, so it's been fantastic. Um, our panellists, so Mel, who was our first, first. panellist. Yes. Yeah. Kath Jack. Mel Muir. 
Mel Muir, yeah. Kath Jack, who stepped in yes. and uh, and panelled for us for a long time um, before she moved to Clifton Springs to, you know, have a sea change. Good on you, Kath. <laughs> She'll be listening. Um, no, Kath and I are still very, very good friends. Um, Nerida, who comes in. Yes. Nerida from Livewire, who comes in once a month and panels for us. But Rachel Bathgate, who you mentioned, yes. Anth. Yep. yep. Um, Peter McAllister, who yes. was part of our program of a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And and I'm sure... And if you, if Laura been, Stewart. Yes. John, John Standish yes. was an early paneler. He went on to great things at the ABC. He did. Um, a I'm sure there are other segment presenters over the... I'm not talking Brent about our current... Brett Illingworth, yeah. our first dive reporter, and um, and our current lineup. who... and you hundreds of. They get thanked all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not mentioning that. Hey, now, one of the things that we did want to touch on was that over the years, as, as Tim, you mentioned, you know, Marinari, in a way, was born out of an idea that you, we wanted to focus people on the beauty and wonder of something, and it was around the marine marine environment, and, um, and bring just stories of amazing stuff. And in the back of our minds, there's an idea of wanting to have an evidence-based protection around that and there was a whole NPO debate and one of the there's been lots of other for one of a better terms movements or for social change that Marinara has been involved in and there's some of them that I can think of Bron but you've got a list as yeah, well. Yeah look just before we move away from marine national parks and we will come back to that too is just having that opportunity and it's such a precious gift to have this space where we can bring to light all sorts of marine science that otherwise would reach a scientific audience but yeah. let's be honest probably not much beyond that so Callum Roberts um, was uh, one of our early interview subjects he was a pioneer um, marine protected area researcher along with Bill Ballantyne yes, the late, the late yes. Bill Ballantyne yes. tried yes. to find our interview oh, with Bill Ballantyne no, I found one but it Did was you? on it was on audio tape right <laughs> so we couldn't find it at some point I'll dedicate some time in my life to pull all this stuff together you know what we so that need? we have you know it. we need some some journalism students who want to archive the history. <laughs> so here's a call Don't out. Anyone, not, not, not right now. now, but, you know, later on. Um, and uh, But as you were saying, there were other campaigns which, you know, found their place to reach a broader audience through this program. So the, the campaign to preserve Bastion Point in Malakuta, yeah. which was a 20-year campaign in the end yes. and ultimately unsuccessful yes. for um, for the conservation uh Groups, but also for the locals at Bastion Point that tried to keep that area protected from development. Um, there was our interview with Louis Sahoyas about the cove. Yes. Now, I, I'm going to... Bron, you were the third person in the world to interview Louis, which, of course, that film went on to win an Oscar. That's right. So the story with the cove was every time we have an international festival in Melbourne, whether it's a comedy festival or the International Film Festival, I grab the guide and pour through it and, you know, just try and find marine-related things. And so the... Um, um, the uh, the guide came through for MIF and in, in that year, which I think was 2009. I thought I'd written it down. Oh, yes, I have. Here we go. Yes, it was 2009. And started flipping through it and then stumbled across this tiny, tiny little picture of, um, of, of you know, a deep a sea dolphin. and a dolphin. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it'll be some fluffy thing about dolphins. Anyway, so I started reading about it. I thought, oh, this looks interesting. So I contacted Triple R Talks Production and said, can we line up an interview? You know, is there any chance? And they said, well, actually, the director's going to be in Melbourne. Would you like to interview him? Sure. So anyway, in came Louis Sahoyas. I sat there the night before watching a, a screener of The Cove oh, and wow. my mind just blew apart. Mm. And I suddenly, you know, when you mm. stumble across these things and you go, this is freaking huge. This is going to be like mm. world changing. Anyway, so yes, The Cove went on to win an Oscar and, um, and for Best be, Documentary. The, the people that had interviewed him beforehand were what? Philip Adams? Philip Adams. Adams. <laughs> 
And someone, it was a like a morning breakfast show in the US. So there that, you go. That was it. And then he, of course, went on to enormous things. Tim Winton. Yes, I remember your first interview yeah. with Tim Winton and then your first interview with Tim Winton, Brian, over yes, the years. There's yeah. been an awesome couple of interviews with Tim. Yeah, we did. We did get Tim Winton. In fact, it was over when I was in Perth. And we also got Robert Hughes. Yes. That's uh, before the car the late crash. Robert Hughes. Jerk no, on we, the end no, of the no, line. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, when he'd written A Jerk on the End of the Line about recreational fishing. But that was, in fact, uh, he was convalescing after oh, the yes. accident the car in yeah, Malcolm right. Turnbull's yeah. house because... Um, <laughs> Lucy Turnbull being his uh, niece, I think. Anyway, yeah, yes, I actually had the phone number to the Turnbull's <laughs> residence. And b- bizarrely, he would not get off the phone. Now, I-, I interviewed him for an hour and a half. And so you can imagine what God, that was like right. to edit at the time with oh, um, tape. Yeah. But he, he, I've still got that somewhere. And that was an incredible interview. Amazing. And then Tim Winton. Well, he came in. We've had, he's, he's been on our program two or three yeah, times now. Yeah, he's been a really solid kind of kind of supporter of marine issues, but also the program. Well, he's years. a patron for the Australian Marine Conservation Society, which was how we first had him in the studio. And he was over here to talk about a campaign they were running about shark conservation. Dave? I just like the way those things come together too. Like you're talking about the cove and how... Um, you saw the movie and you managed to get the interview going together. Um, there was a time when Tim Allen actually through VMPA had organised Sylvia Earle and David Bellamy to be in town together and um, I was looking through a catalogue of books coming out and I saw one by David Suzuki. I thought, I wonder if we can talk to him. And so you and rang, rang me. <laughs> well, I rang, rang the publisher first and they right. said, no, he's booked out. There's no way we can't fit him in. And then you rang me and I went... Bugger that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's make this happen. But and we so also we rang back to the publisher and said, what if he's in the studio with Sylvia Earle and David Bellamy? <laughs> About ten minutes later, yes, where, when? Yeah. <laughs> Just so keen to be on the line. And we happen to have uh, about five minutes of that interview that we want to play now. Um, do you want to give it a quick promo? Bob? Yeah. So they ended up. We had we had less than twenty four hours notice, Dave. And I don't yeah. know, don't know if you remember, but you and I got together. We we massaged this interview until about midnight, and then had to be at the Triple R Studios at with something like seven in the go. morning. Yes, with because they needed breakfast. breakfast. That's right. Yes. And um and the whole. The, this kind of gem of an opportunity to get three of the world's leading oh conservationists God, yeah. in the one space at the one time. And so just a tiny little snippet here. This goes for four minutes. And we're talking to them about the benefits of marine national parks and particularly in the context of Victoria because there was a huge, as you were saying before, Tim, big debate running at the time, a lot of resistance to it, particularly coming out of the recreational fishing lobby. And so the questions that we just asked was, why should we be investing in marine protected areas? Why should we care? And how can we convince those who don't see the value of marine conservation how valuable it is both for now and into the future? I think most people um, ask, if you ask them the question, what do you fear or look forward to most in the future, they'll say, will my children have a good job and what sort of environment will they live in? Now, I mean, those things are um, soluble in economic terms as long as we put ecology at the base of the economy. Most of the fishers I've met along this coast here, they say, oh, yeah, the fishing was much better days when I was young. So there they say themselves it's going wrong and therefore they've got to be part of it in uh, the recuperating the rehabilitation of these areas. The key is understanding. With, with knowing comes caring. Uh, with caring, there's some hope that we might be able to get it right, find a place for ourselves within the rest of the many species that David Suzuki described that uh, occupy or share the planet with us or that we share with them. But there's no guarantee that if people understand what's going on that they will care but I can guarantee that you can't care if you don't know. 
the magnitude of our ignorance about the ocean is so vast. I mean, less than 5% has been seen at all. But we know enough, after all of the time that humans have been around, we know enough to know that we are utterly and totally, completely dependent on the existence of the ocean for our own survival and our own well-being. Economically, environmentally, all things lead to the ocean. And one thing is also clear, that the ocean now, and I use the word singularly because all, all the oceans of the world tie together into one ocean, the ocean is in trouble. We have taken so much out of the ocean, especially in the last half century, during the lifetimes of people now around. The changes have been profound, more than during all preceding human history have been brought to the ocean through our new technologies, our ability to find and extract creatures from the sea at an unprecedented scale. Also, what we're putting into the sea is the other great source of trouble. And again, our capacity to change the chemistry of our life support system, the ocean, through what we allow to flow into it. From the tops of mountains, the headwaters of rivers, from fields and farms, our backyards, even our golf courses, have an impact on what is way downstream. And here's the bottom line. If the ocean is in trouble, so are we. The oceans are in trouble. Ocean is in trouble, and therefore so are we. So what are we going to do about it? Part of the solution, not the entire solution, but a big piece of what is the right thing to do is inherent in this concept of doing just what we did for the land in the 20th century to establish parks, preserves, protected areas, not just for the likes of the two Davids here and myself, the tree huggers, the whale huggers, the fish huggers of the world, or for the trees and the critters that live there, but it's for all of humankind forever. It's our life support system that we're establishing some protection for. I think one of the difficulties you face in the developed world is that we've, we've had huge capital investment in the, in the fishing fleet, and these ships are unbelievably efficient predators. They can, you know, in, in, on the west coast of British Columbia, you can literally take out an entire run with one set of the net because your ability to identify them, locate them, and take them is so immense. So when you've got that amount of money invested in your fleet, it's very, very hard then to pull back because you're involved in competing internationally. The global economy then is, is demanding that you keep that productivity up. So our experience in British Columbia is that when you get the stakeholders there, they're very, very reluctant to give up any inch of their share. And e even the sports fishers who just go out and do it for fun, man, they are one of the most recalcitrant groups going. And they will oppose marine protected areas right down the line. So my suggestion uh, it has been that you've got to get communities where they've gone through this argument, where you get fishing, uh, fishing people who fought it tooth and nail. But when the M MPAs were were finally put in place. They became evangelists for it because they could see the concrete results. So I think your community, when there's a bitter debate raging, ought to hear from people who've already gone through it, paid the price, and then reap the benefit. You are indeed on 3 R. This is Radio Marino. It is our 1,000th show, and I had forgotten that we had that interview. You two, Dave and Ron, that is remarkable. That was a great David Bellamy, David Suzuki, and, and Sylvia. Sylvia Earle. In the workplace. They were as excited as we were. They're going, oh, we never actually get together together. Uh, 
But the best part of that day it was Radiothon, and so we had a lot of stuff around the station for Radiothon, including this electric motorbike. And somehow we got this idea of, can you put on Triple R T-shirts and all sit on the motorbike? And they all said yes. <laughs> crazy photographs of them all sitting on the motorbike. You've got to find those photos. And in the background, Tim, you're chauffeuring Bellamy around. Well, I, yeah, I had to chauffeur Bellamy around. I mean, David Bellamy is larger than life, but the thing I remember about Bellamy was that he loved tripe. And so I had to find him a restaurant in Melbourne that served tripe. And so, did uh, you manage it? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Wow. I found a place for him and he was very happy. Very happy. Very happy. <laughs> that was part of a that that interview was packaged up and part of a CD, wasn't it, Brian? Yes. So we ended up um, putting together and um, props to Kathy Oak for really driving this um, a a CD which was called Marine National Parks: A World First for Victoria. So this was ultimately the big kind of push forward to really get support, bipartisan support, in in Victorian Parliament. And one of these went into the pigeonhole of every. MP at the time. So it included the full interview with um, with David Bellamy, uh, Sylvia Earle and David Suzuki but we also had a couple of interviews in there. One with Trevor Willis who was a postdoc student at Lee Univers- at Auckland University at Lee Marine Reserve at the time and Callum Roberts who was from the UK so we're really sort of pulling together, together the heavy hitters of marine conservation research and all wrapped up in this one CD. That was in 2002. Yes. Now, we were going to do some talk back, but we've frankly run out of time, which none of us surprised us at all. John, we need to hear from you. What is your favourite recollection? And while you're telling this, we have a couple of giveaways. Yeah, look, um, we have a couple of giveaways. And look, in the spirit of Radio Marinara, John, before you start talking, um, Tim, I want you to tell this story because this was one of the, or both you and, and Dave, about how the transition from out of the blue to at 3CR, which we mentioned is still going, to Radio Marinara here at Triple R, a whole new um, show. And both, you know, how wonderful it is that both programs still operate concurrently. But there's this, there's a funny story about a coffee table book. Well, we were given a book to give away on 3CR when we had Out of the Blue. And we thought there was a there was an audience. We really believed it, you know. And uh, so we'd be, we used to put enormous amount of hours into the preparation for the show every week. Dave, well, it was all pre-recorded, done on reel-to-reel tape. So we'd get there on Wednesday night, end up doing half-hour show with about five hours of tape being cut down into this show. It, it took a phenomenal amount of hours for. The, live show to be done it was incredible anyway we were doing this giveaway and we said and now we'd like people to call in we've got a book to give away no one rang (laughs) we had a question though and then we and we said okay no we'll make it an easier question and we said if you ring and answer this question and so i think you dave said what colour is the ocean? <laughs> we would have accepted any colour of blue. No one rang. No one rang. And then you, Tim, said, if anyone rings in at all and tells us they're listening, we'll give you the book. No one rang. So there was another time when we tried to give away a dive course as well, a complete dive yes. course, free, no cost, all equipment supplied, and that didn't go either. So We I'm thought it was time to move. This has been a podcast oh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.